Hello, Edgar. Hello, how are How are you today? Doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So today we are going to record our first follow-up. That means that this is a follow-up to our first <laughs> podcast. Yes, it's a question we're having. Is this a second podcast or not? It is in some ways, and yet since it's not a themed podcast, mm -hmm. we are going to refer to it as the first follow-up. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about what we are going to do today? We have received a few comments on the first podcast on the fee determination, mm -hmm. and we want to bring some of those comments to our audience and have a conversation about them. If you have any questions or comments, you can share them with us through our Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud and iTunes accounts or directly through our email address, discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Nielsen. Welcome to discussions on psychoanalysis. First of all, we would like to thank everybody who listened to our podcast. Well, thank you. Yes, yeah, thank you. We are feeling very grateful for the amount of people who at least clicked on the <laughs> podcast. From what we can see, even if we don't have access to very specific data, many people are dropping after a few minutes, but we are very thankful for the 40 to 30% of listeners who keep listening to the end. We were also very surprised to see how worldwide our audiences someone clicked at least from uh, taiwan some people from france some people from israel brazil argentina this is completely unexpected and it is a very very nice surprise it's a very good surprise indeed so <laughs> thank you First question. Someone asked us to talk about the impact in patients of their fantasies that their analyst has a higher or lower fee than other analysts and that they might pay more or less than other patients. Competition, jealousy, projections. Edgar, do you have any idea regarding that question? My experience is that since I've been working with patients who were with me since I was a licensed qualifying candidate, meaning I had no license, some of them have seen me move from an office in the institute to an office that I shared with another colleague, then to my own office that had no window and now an office that has a window. So they have seen a progression in mm -hmm. terms of what I can afford in terms of my rental. Oh, And that also has brought up some concerns in some of them, if they will be able to keep working with me as I have been increasing the fee. And there has been also some expressions of desire to pay more because they acknowledge that we've been working for a long time. And also they see that there's been some progress in terms of my own practice and progress in their own lives. 
So that has come up not so much about competition or jealousy as much as a token of gratitude. So you didn't for some. you didn't experience, for instance, patients signaling you or you wondering whether patients were thinking that you could be maybe cheap because they can afford you, that they might be more well-known, for instance, Spanish-speaking therapists that mm -hmm. they could not afford, but so they have to just be with you as a compromise, but they're not mm -hmm. so happy. I have seen that happening with those patients who came to me through my work with an organization that offers low-fee services. My understanding of their conflict is that they had compromised quality of the therapeutic process because they could not afford it. In many of those cases, we were not able to work it through and they left the treatment. I see. And what about between patients? Did you have to deal with any comments about maybe some patients are paying more than others? Maybe they have more copay or... Again, my experience has been more of a gratitude, an acknowledgement of the lower fee. You took it as such? You think it was really what they were experiencing? Like no, I would always add a negation there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, if a patient it? says, I, I'm really glad that you are giving me the opportunity to pay this amount. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I would put that, no, I am not happy about this. Mm -hmm. uh, so that leads me to explore in depth And the, the conflicts, if there's one. And competition between patients? Did mm -hmm. you have patients thinking that Mm -hmm. Maybe others are paying you more, others are paying you less? That has not come up in sessions, or I don't recall anything like that. They all know that I have a sliding scale, so somewhere in their minds that is present, meaning they know that some people pay more than others. Now, what about your experience, Gregoire, in terms of these fantasies, conflicts, competition? I did experience actually the fact that I was a second choice, especially at the beginning of uh, my practice when I wasn't licensed yet, because in the French community, there are a few very well-known uh, clinicians with whom I had some contact and especially one who would uh, refer some of the patients uh, who would come see her and could not afford her service. Some of them contacted me, not all of them actually, and regularly I could sense, and maybe it's projection on my part also, but I could sense the fact that they were happy to see me, they were happy to have the opportunity to be in therapy, mm. and at the same time they still had to digest their experience of being rejected by what they considered to be the best choice. Mm -hmm. There is a, an element of reality that they could not afford to see this person, that they could afford to see me because I was in training. And at that point, I think the fact that I was already a clinical psychologist and I had already probably 10 years of experience behind me, it didn't really matter. Yes. In my case, I am in two different health insurance panels. Mm -hmm. So I've had some cases in which the patient decides to come work with me, not only because they work around the area where my office is located, but also because I accept health insurance, which is not accepted by the patient's first choice. Oh, I see. So the patient went to who they thought were the first choice in terms of therapy. Mm -hmm. And the therapist said, I don't accept health insurance. In some cases, the therapy has uh, referred that person to me. 
Mm. I think another aspect of this question is the fact that maybe some patients might need a high fee or low fee, but especially high fee to feel like they are in good hands. Since we recorded the podcast, I did experience that a few times, how people felt that our Was it really talked about this way? Maybe not so, but this was my interpretation, which is always something to take with caution. But I had a sense that me being flexible actually prevented the therapy from happening. That if I was willing to ask them to not pay a high fee, it became a threat. It never actually worked through long enough for us to discuss it. But the feeling I got was, if this guy is not overbooked and overcharging, Yes. It's not good. It's not good. Yes. Again, that happens because you are out of network and therefore you are more in control of your fees. Yeah. Than in my case. I would like to add something to the mix here. Even though the question was about the experience of the patient, reality is that for those of us who are starting our professional careers as psychoanalysts, we get referrals from other analysts who charge more. And the patient may not know that, but we know. Indeed. I think it's beyond the scope of this podcast to talk about our cancer transference, but I think it's something we need to keep in mind as we become the recipients of low-fee referrals from other colleagues. Talking about that, I recently got an email offering me to um, receive a very low-fee French-speaking person. It was off in terms of how time goes by. Mm-hmm. As if I was still five years or six years ago, dealing with a $20 stipend uh, and uh, hungry for hours to uh, be able to sit for the state exam. Yes. I think that's something probably that is not relevant for patients, but as clinician, yeah, it, we need to keep in mind of who we are referring to because there is a reaction. I wouldn't know exactly from what your part, I mean, yeah. I mean, from the analyst's Yeah, uh, from the analyst's side. part. Okay. Anyway, and the question was also about um, competition between patients. I did not find directly expressed competition, but I did find people who were thinking that since I'm charging that much and I must have that number of patients, I must earn that much, which is always off because uh, there are, I don't think, two patients I'm charging exactly the same fee. Mm-hmm. But I do keep in mind, and I think it's really a struggle with sliding scale, the fact that it's inevitable that patients will think at one point or the other and might be resentful of the fact that you might charge other less. And also some might feel narcissistically rewarded by the fact that you charge them more and think that the other patients are shit and etc. Mm-hmm. It might not be expressed in such a way. And of course, as always, those are things that should be discussed and worked through in a treatment. But it is something to keep in mind. Like It's impossible that patients who benefit from a sliding scale don't think that some other people are paying less. And this question of, again, I go back to this idea of love. Why would you love them more than me, etc.? Even if, I mean, I try to put love uh, on the side and try to determine a fee with my patient that makes sense to both of us. Mm-hmm. But certainly, I keep in mind that it's impossible that this question is out of their mind completely. Yeah. Now, let's move to the second question. One of the questions that we received is that what we do or what would happen if a patient has no money to pay? Are there other ways to create an exchange between the patient and the analyst? I guess it's probably in reference to uh, what I 
mentioned about children and some services in France because we have uh, public places where people can come and be treated for free in psychotherapy. My experience, at least with children, is that clearly they need to produce something. They need to pay in a metaphorical way by drawing something, for example, or maybe a sculpture or anything that they can produce from which they could experience a loss. To me, that's important because paying is experiencing a loss. Children can pay, but they can certainly produce something that they could lose. And I would say that with adults who can pay, something like that could be experimented. I remember someone at NPAP who mentioned how he uh, treated someone who, who, to pay him, uh, painted his house, uh, their external of his house. I remember that case. Yes. Now, I don't know if I would feel comfortable doing that, but I think it, it's an example. I mean, you would certainly need to have a connection with a patient that is such that can um, make that possible without feeling too disruptive to the therapy. But certainly, patients who don't have money can pay. I think we should be really careful not to be too concrete with the terms we use. And to pay has to be understood also in the symbolic term. And when the concrete act of paying money cannot be done, then you can pay differently. There is a parallel question here. In this case, the question is about a patient that cannot pay the sessions. What about the patient who doesn't pay for the sessions because the insurance company pays the whole fee? Well, what do you think? Well, that's my case. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I brought it. I have no clue. <laughs> in those cases, I bring that up very explicitly mm -hmm. in the session. Mm -hmm. I may say something like, it seems that your insurance is paying the fee, the uh, allowed amount, and therefore you have no copay. So the patient is not putting one cent. Yeah, we mentioned that last time. Yeah, so in this case, it's not about the patient not having money, but what the patient is producing that can be symbolically compared to money. That's for me, it's an important question and I have no clear answer to it. And the problem in your situation is that you have to think in terms of legal terms because I don't think that you would be allowed legally mm -hmm. to ask your patients to pay you more. You could lose your license, I think. I'm not sure about the license. Definitely being in network with the yeah. insurance company. Well, they would sue you. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put it very lightly. Uh, so it creates a conundrum the dilemma in the therapeutic process because the patient is not paying. Yeah. So what the patient will produce, what will be the transaction, what would be offered, what is tangible. I'm beginning to ponder if that would be commitment to the treatment in the long run. And that's a problem in some ways mm -hmm. because patients should pay to feel allowed to get out of it. To get out of it. Yeah, to say, damn you. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So I'm still pondering what to do in those cases. Mm. I think the end game is to get out of in-network. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I'm giving you a clue. <laughs> okay, let's move to the next question. We were asked when and how to analyze the tension around the fees with patients. As a rule, I analyze what can be analyzed. And second, I analyze when it shows up in a negative transference. If I'm charging too much and the patient says, you are not fair to me, you don't understand my financial situation, then that would be analyzed. 
if a patient says you are charging too little, I don't feel comfortable, it's like you're making me a favor, mm -hmm. I would analyze that. So my rule is to analyze what is analyzable. What has been brought up. Directly. What it has brought up in therapy and has the quality of a negative transference. If I experience something as a positive transference, I don't touch that. Yeah. I would say some somewhat the same, but instead of using the term uh, negative transference, but that's exactly the same idea, like when the interactions are such that it prevents the development of the therapy. So that's uh, what uh, negative transference is about, but um, just to put it out there. Actually, for some patients, I offer them to pay me the copay and uh, ask their insurance to send me the rest of the money. And with some of my patients, it uh, happened very nicely and it was very helpful for them financially. But recently, I had someone who would systematically forget to send the paper to the insurance. And I could sense that there was a resistance there. And I brought it up. I was like, okay, so maybe the frame we discussed is actually inappropriate. Maybe we need to think about something else. And to put it very simply, what came up is that to this person, to send the document to the insurance so that I would receive the money was too much. It was a violation of our agreement because he was working for me instead of me working for him. Uh, I see. So the patient thought that perhaps a better agreement was for you to deal with health insurance companies. No, actually what we found out is that uh -huh. now this person is paying me directly. Okay. And I just wait for a few months before I deposit the check. Then the insurance is going to send to this person whatever oh, they, they can get. And then this person doesn't have to send me to send a document for me, for my own pleasure. So that's how we dealt with it. Another of the comments we got is that we forgot to integrate that psychoanalysis exists in a culture and that the fee determination process is influenced by that culture. Well, that's very true. And actually what happened is that we did talk about it, even if no one heard us talk about it because it was removed in the editing process. I'm pleading guilty. I'm the one editing the podcast and uh, I removed it because I thought that it might be too long. So, but just uh, let's um, go back to what actually was said at that time is that yes, the fee determination process is heavily dependent on the culture the therapy is going to happen. And uh, for instance, um, we are practicing in New York and so we need to take into consideration uh, expenses that are very different than let's say for example if we were practicing in france or in countries that have a different taxation system for instance when you go to france you will very unlikely have to pay 200 euros a session 100 euros a session when i left about 10 years ago i think sessions were around 40 euros i think now from what i hear it can be 60 or 80 it is much lower because healthcare unemployment uh, retirement all those things are already taken care of by the states which is not the case at all in the U.S. Okay, I understand. So what you're saying is that the patient has and will receive benefits from the state that compensate for the payment he's or she's making to the therapist. When you're paying someone in the U.S., you know that this person, the therapist, is going to have to pay for private insurance. You know that public schools are going to close at 2.30 or 2.45 
and that you're going to have to pay for after school. You know that you have to save money for colleges if you have kids. There are many expenses that are privatized that are actually in France public. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's why a percentage of the fees that we ask in uh, New York State are related to the expenses to, uh, we have to deal with because of the American society and the taxation system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that. And there's also a cultural aspect. I guess in some countries uh, it feels okay to pay a lot. In some countries it's, it doesn't. And probably even within the U.S., New Yorkers, they're used to this idea that you have to spend a lot of money. I would assume that even in different parts of the U.S., um, this is not the case at all. And the fee determination should take that into consideration. Do you have any idea regarding maybe Puerto Rico? I don't know right now how sessions are what would be the average in Puerto Rico? Well, when I left the island about 15, 16 years ago, it was about $60 per session. I think it remains more or less the same, but I don't, I'm not sure. That would be out of network. It seems that in Puerto Rico, most of the mental health treatments are not covered by health insurance. Mm-hmm. So that's a different take. But I would, I would assume that the cost of life is much lower too. No, that's not... True. That's not the case? No, because due to the Jones Act... Uh, oh, yeah, you guys have to pay so much for everything. We have to pay... Uh, yes, in indeed. fact, we have to pay more yes, in, yes, some, yes. in some cases. You're being punished. Yeah. So, so that's a completely different situation. Plus, if you add a cultural reality, which is how psychotherapy is perceived in the island, not many people are willing to pay for sessions. Mm-hmm because that is perceived as a weakness more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, The person is crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's the only moment when you should be paying Mm -hmm. for therapy. You're crazy. Yeah. And maybe to go back to something we just said earlier, probably in some subcultures, if you don't pay your therapist a lot, then it means that you are not being provided with uh, good care. Mm -hmm. And so when you're seeing a patient um, who comes from such place of course you have to charge yes it's probably very convenient because then you earn more money but you also have to hear that if you try to maybe be more fair from the therapist's point of view then the person in front of you is going to leave because they are not going to feel held someone asked us if we see things differently since we recorded the podcast Edgar. Uh, yes, definitely. And I think that's one of the benefits of recording the podcast, that we are in conversation, uh, at least at on one moment, you and I are in conversation. Mm-hmm. And then we are in conversation with the uh, a larger audience. So a couple of things have, have been changing, or I've been pondering about changing them. Mm-hmm. One is that I take more time to determine a fee for those patients who are out of network. It means that instead of going and agree on a fee on the first consultation, it may take longer yeah. to reach an agreement. The second thing is what to do in terms of commitment and how is that tied up to the fee. And I've been pondering and I will put in place a system where I'm leasing the hour to the patient, meaning that the patient comes in or doesn't come in, the hour needs to be paid. And there is some flexibility when we look throughout the year, meaning I will be out of the office for personal or professional reasons, probably three weeks during the year. So I'm telling the patient that that's also on the other side, meaning he or she will be able to take three weeks of the year 
and not be accountable for them. But the rest of the sessions need to be paid for. I see. To put it in a different way, if someone buys a house, the house has a mortgage, you pay the mortgage. If you live in the house or not, you pay. If you have a car, you pay your lease or your loan every month. You use the car or don't. Mm -hmm. That's not yeah. the, the point. The point is that we are entering into a, an agreement that this hour, this day, this time is leased to the patient. I could say something alike. Actually, I also uh, realized that I had to take more time to decide on people's fee. Uh, just the first session was not enough. I needed to take, I would say, um, yeah, usually three sessions to come up with how much a patient should be charged. And then um, people pay me retroactively. Someone mentioned a very interesting question. What about the fact that candidates work, people who are not licensed and still working at the clinical center within the institute, makes up for a substantial part of the institute's budget? Should we think about it in terms of uh, the fee determination process? Well, it's a difficult question because we don't determine the fee of the patient. So I would change the perspective. What I mean is that it's not so much about how we establish the fee, but how content we are with the fact that our work is what sustains the Institute. Yes. So would that bring us to a place where we feel angry about the quote-unquote free work that we're doing and in what ways that is redirected towards the patient yes. and not towards the institute? Yes, exactly. Another way of looking at it is that the relationship of the candidate to the institute and vice versa is an asymmetrical relationship. There is, in fact, a benefit for the candidate, but it's the asymmetry is what needs to be explored because it may lead to the aggression. Yeah, and there could be aggression toward the patients because people in training might feel cheated on, even if, mm. of course, they need a place like a clinical center to get to accumulate hours because of the state requirements. But the fact that the need institutes have of people in training is not really clearly talked about. I think this leads to violence. This leads to unprocessed aggression. We can discuss it. Could think that maybe it could lead to more aggression towards patients by the trainees because they will displace it toward the person they have in front of them. Yes, I agree with you. I would add that it seems that this is a structural issue. Mm -hmm. It's not only our institute. There are other institutes who more or less have the same issue. And there are some places that do things that I think are unethical. You accrue hours. You get, let's say, the $20 a stipend mm -hmm. for sessions you, s you have with your patients. And over that, you n have responsibilities in terms of administration within the clinical center. And those duties include not only dealing with paperwork, but also with garbage. It includes other things that are beyond what is expected. Because in some ways, it's interesting to put someone in training in a position that could seem as similar as possible to what they will experience once in their office. And when you are in your office, you are yes. the one taking care of Except the garbage. Except that they don't have an office. And yes. they don't have the perks of 
this being their office, they only have the annoying aspects of it. Yes. My perspective is that clinical center or institute is taking advantage of free labor. Yeah. So instead of paying for some services to other people who can do that work, they use candidates and interns who need to be there yeah. for reasons that are connected to the state law. And it is not thought through, we, and it will have consequences in people's practice. Correct. Okay. Next question. At some point, I referred to myself as Mido Chair or former Mido Chair to be exact. People who are in PAP probably know what that means, but it seems like our audience expands way beyond NPAP. So Mido Chair means that I, at some point, was for two years actually, the head of the student body. Mido stands for Member in Training Organization. Uh, to which I was a chair for two years. It might seem prestigious, but it is not really. Basically, the group is actually relieved when someone is uh, willing to take the job. Someone asked to hear more about your experience with the network you referred to with very low fee patients. You brought that up a little bit uh, earlier. Yes. I think the person is referring to Open Path. And it's an organization that has the mission of offering low-fee psychotherapy. It doesn't have to be psychoanalysis to people who cannot afford to do otherwise. The agreement is that one will offer a certain percentage of the hours that one has during the week. And what's your experience of it? I've had good and not so good experiences. I have noticed that people who come to me through this organization, expect the low fee, but do not expect to be in therapy for too long. So they usually want something that would be more appropriately labeled as cognitive behavioral therapy, manualized mm -hmm. therapy, homeworks, etc. So it takes a while to give the patient a better idea of what I do in therapy I as see. a clinician. The challenge in terms of the fee is that one can establish the fee. It goes from $30 to $60. Mm. That's the agreement with the organization. Okay. But once you reach that top level, you cannot increase the fee. Even if your patient situation changed? If the situation changes, yes. But if you are thinking about increasing your fee across the board to all your patients by whatever amount a different amount to each patient, mm -hmm. you cannot do that with them. Okay. In my case, I have decided to offer those slots to people who would like to do two or three times a week. Oh, I see. So if a person wants to do a psychoanalysis proper three times a week, I will offer the low fee. And of course, there is a commitment to go through the treatment. This is not a one-month treatment. This is a long-term treatment. The idea that to come three times a week means uh, a proper analysis is a question, though. Yes. I'm not sure what other term to use. I am a psychoanalyst, even if I'm doing once a week. Yeah, but I guess what you were referring to is you are looking for people who are ready to engage. They have a desire to engage on a deeper level. Yeah. yeah. And whether or not it leads to psychoanalysis is a different story. It's a different story. 
Yeah. Other cases that come through open path, in my experience, I don't know other people who work with them, is that sometimes a patient does not want to use their health insurance for confidentiality reasons. Mm -hmm. And they would rather pay what would be a higher copay, let's say $60, okay. just to keep the process very confidential. Mm -hmm. So no one will know that the person is in therapy. The insurance company is not notified. The person is not interested in using their benefits. And that's why they come to Open Path. And you found that question more frequently or maybe exclusively with people you received from yes. that organization? Yes. Okay. Otherwise, people come to me because they want to use their health insurance benefits. Yeah. Okay. So that's an, it's an intriguing situation. It is something I bring up to uh, my patients because even as an out-of-network provider, I can still give them statements uh, that they can um, send to their insurance if they have an out-of-network option. And yeah, so far, nobody actually raised um, any concern about the question of privacy. So it's an intriguing part of my experience with Open Path. Okay. And finally, we received a few comments. Edgar, you want to talk to us about it? Yes, we got some comments about the psychoanalytic training, specifically comments that compare and contrast the training before the state law came into effect mm -hmm. in New York State and the training after the law is in place. The licensing law. The licensing of psychoanalysts. Yeah. And in terms of the training, because we were talking about the fee, some people during their training, they would deal very in-depth with the fee determination in classes and in role-playing in classes. So that was part of their training, which is no longer part of our training in post-licensing process. I guess uh, this is it for today. This concludes our first follow-up, specifically on the first podcast on the fee determination process. If you want to send us questions or comments, please look at our accounts on either Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or iTunes, or directly to our email address, discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. The information will be on the podcast description. And don't forget to give us five stars if you <laughs> want to support us. This is Edgar Danielson. This is Grégoire Pierre. Thank you for listening to discussions on psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm.